Our next uh, speaker was accepted by the US National Science Foundation as their first female writer in residence at the South Pole and spent seven months in Antarctica, resulting in uh, a book about that, Terra Incognita. She was frequently abroad then for two years for her next book, traveling to Russia, Alaska, Greenland, Canada and North Norway to write The Magnetic North Travels in the Arctic. Here to talk to us about the whole idea of the North is Sarah Wheeler. Well, good morning. What a morning we've had. Um, I'm going to take you on a little uh, circumpolar tour um, with to this morning um, with some images. Um, and my purpose really is twofold. One is to um, maybe say something and explore the notion of maps, oh, the role of maps in a literally unstable icy environment, and with particular reference to climate change and to the indigenous peoples of the high Arctic. And the second thing I want to do, my second aim in this talk, is to think about the metaphorical role of maps for the writer. Um, and, but before I do any of that, I'm actually going to um, read one paragraph, which is one of my most significant mapperies. Shakespeare uses the word mappery, one of my most significant mappery moments. And it's actually uh, from, the, from the south, from the, from the Antarctic where, as Sam said, I spent seven months a long time ago. Although it's not actually from my Antarctic book, it's from um, Selected Writings, book of my Selected Writings, uh, 20 years of Selected Writings, essays and so on, which my publishers uh, chose to bring out to celebrate, as they said, my 50th birthday. It wasn't quite the, the verb I would have uh, chosen myself, but anyway. So um, here is uh, a par one paragraph. The happiest moment of my life presented itself one cool February afternoon in the Transantarctic Mountains, many years ago. I was hiking up a valley. Fearful of losing my bearings, I stopped to fish a USGS map from my pack and spread it on the ice. Tracing my route by topographical landmarks, including an especially pointy mountain glaciologists had baptised the Doesn't Matter Horn, My finger came to a straight line drawn with a ruler and marked limit of compilation. Beyond that, the sheet was blank. I had reached the end of the map. And I've got that map here, so I wonder if the person at the end and the end could step up. And, 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 and I tried to get it laminated, but you can't. Uh, you've got to stick. Um, well, you have to come on the stage, I think. There's steps there, isn't there? Yeah. What you have to do is you have to hold the top and the bottom. One set at the bottom. Okay, so this is that map which I've cherished all those years. So this, you see, that's that's my limit of compilation. It doesn't really matter which way up it which way up it goes. And this is unmapped. And that was a very potent thing for a writer to be off the map. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, I just say sort of one of the other th sort of odd things about being in the Antarctic, uh, no maps, there's no time zones, because it doesn't belong to anybody. So when you join a science camp, uh, you say, okay, what, what time should we make it? Because if you're working in a team, you have to stick by it. So you just invent a time um, and follow the 24-hour cycle. Uh, when I was actually at the South Pole, I made friends with a junior a member of an astrophysics team, because the Earth's atmosphere is the most shallow at the poles. And so 
people people who look up, um, you know, study the sun or any astrophysics, they, they, they're there. And he was a Muslim, and he sort of made a compromise with himself that he only prayed once a day. But of course, he was in this tremendous dilemma that he asked everybody about, about which way to face. <laughs> <laughs> and the scientists love that kind of thing. So, well, we talked about that an awful lot. Um, uh, I called my book about the Antarctic Terra Incognita, because, which I got from the old maps, because it used to be called Terra Australis Incognita, the unknown southern land um, for many centuries. That's what, what the Antarctic zone was called. So I thought Terra Incognita was a... Was a suitable title because I wanted to explore um, the symbolism of a land that's unowned, unpolluted, no wars, and so on. So that's that. So now we're going to go on. Do I have the first slide, please? So our circumpolar journey. Now that is not an Antarctic, an, an Arctic um, telegraph pole. Um, that is, in fact, one of the most sacred sites in the whole Arctic because it's where the first headlines started two miles down, the first headlines about climate change. Because you hear a lot said these days about the, the seabed being the only un unmapped territory of the planet, but it's not true. Because in the polar regions, but in the Antarctic, there's you know, two miles of ice, they do try and map what's underneath. They know there's mountain ranges, but it's not mapped. And this is the top of the Greenland ice cap which, of course, does have land underneath it, unlike a lot of the Arctic. And so these, these two teams, this was in the late 70s, the scientists had kept a hole op open for two miles. That is an incredibly hard thing to do, by the way, for to drill it and then keep it open. And they're monitoring the flow of the... Because all this ice underneath here is it's like icing flowing off a cake, you know. And the rate at which it's flowing... I'm not a scientist, but I learned all this from spending many, many months in tents with scientists. Um, uh, you, you want to monitor the rate at which it's flowing and the temperature. And uh, so that was for the first big new, the big news. And everything really about climate change emanates from there. We'll come back to that a bit um, later. Um, and there's all sorts of questions about the polar regions uh, that raise issues, both of them, that raise issues about uh, what it is to be human. And of course, there's no indigenous population in the Antarctic. So it's a kind of, as I said, it's a symbol of possibilities of what could be. And there's no land-based mammals, and so all the, um, and none of the marine mammals uh, have any land-based predators. So penguins, they look you right in the eye, you know, because they, they have no fear when they're on land. They follow you around. I mean, they got, you know, we got fed up with them much more quickly than they got fed up with us. Um, uh, and so it's a kind of symbol of what the Earth could be, whereas, of course, the Arctic is more a symbol of what the Earth is. It's disputed, it's polluted. It's a story of the indigenous peoples around the circumpolar Arctic is the usual story of people dragged into a cash economy and sort of ruined, cultural and social destruction. But the thing about um, the Arctic, of course, is that seven countries uh, own, own parts of it, so each government's done it in its own way. Uh, some with good intentions, like Canada, others without good intentions, like Russia. But the, the terrible thing is, the result's always the same. Anyway, so there was a person, there was a life. It was many years apart they did these two books. Um, as a young writer, it seemed to me that the Antarctic was a perfect place for a young writer. You should have hope. Writers have got to have hope and possibilities. And I just looked north and thought, oh, God, you know, I can't be doing with any of that. But then when I got middle-aged, it seemed to me that the Arctic really suited that elegiac melancholy. Uh, by, the, by the time you are middle-aged, you realize there are no answers. 
there's any questions, and you've just got to keep asking them, and that there's no black and white, there's only shades of grey. Um, yeah, I'm not, I'm not a scientist, as I say, and I'm also not very practical. Um, I got lost coming here yesterday from the hotel, which is about a three-minute walk. Um, uh, and that's my skidoo, and that was actually not my tent, it was a science tent. So this is basically what I've sort of spent a lot of my life doing, is um, going around uh, visiting scientists. Like science camps can be anything from two to 200. I had my own camp for two months in the Arctic, with a, with, in the Antarctic, with a painter. Um, but I'm not very adroit at those kind of things. The thing I really hate most of all is people introduce me sometimes as an explorer. Not only do I not want to be an explorer, I don't have much, I've got, well, I've got opinions about explorers, but, not only, but I don't have the skills, so like pretending I'm something I'm not. I was rather sort of, the working title for this book was Carry On at the Arctic, um, because I... <laughs> now, one thing that interests me a lot as a writer is toponyms. You know, toponyms are place names, and they can be incredibly revealing. Um, <laughs> and uh, I mean, they really can be revealing. Um, particularly, I found, um, well, I know that certainly Chinese characters and Japanese kanji, there's some really interesting, the South Pacific, they have a lot of um, incredibly rich vocabulary for nature, for the natural world, and it's very interesting. But anyway, of course, I couldn't resist. I was just going up the Dalton Highway in Alaska. Um, yeah, the less said about that, the better, probably. Um, that's the only overland route. Okay, this is that was the only overland route from uh, uh, Fairbanks in the north of Alaska to um, the the coast. You know, which is where the oil is, Prudhoe Bay. It's a really long way. It's called. I went. Oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, the Hall Road. Um, it was. It's called the Hall Road. And what the Hall Road is there for is to supply the Trans-Alaska Pipeline, which brings the oil down from Prudhoe Bay, and then takes it down to the um, United States, and it goes zigzaggy because that's, a, from a physics point of view, makes it flow better. Anyway, here's the point of this. This is a poster that was produced uh, by the US government um, when the pipeline was built, um, and it's, it's for the indigenous peoples who've had st stu stewarded this, um, oh, stewarded this, uh, it's the Brooks Range, it's called, a really particularly beautiful part of the Arctic, you can't see the beauty of it there. But they had to, the government had to persuade these indigenous peoples that this polluting pipeline, which leaks all the time and, um, you know, thunderous lorries going up there, was going to be good for them. So this is a sort of public a, a, a PR thing. So part of our past here for the future, well, one of those statements is true. It's certainly here for the future because no one's giving up hydrocarbons anytime. Of course, it's not part of their past, the indigenous peoples. They've been stewarding that land for ages. So as I say, so there's a reindeer herder. Um, there's uh, many, many um, uh, indigenous groups of people. There's 37 in Russia alone. Discrete groups, I mean, with their own language and their own culture and all the rest of it. Most of them are reindeer herders. Um, some herd, uh, some uh, catch um, marine mammals. Yeah, so that's the kind of about the history of the p of people. That's actually in Lapland. Um, yeah, that's just. What do I think about that? I think I thought it was rather beautiful, and it just shows how long people have been living in this incredibly uh, extreme environment. Um, in Russia, uh, I mentioned Russia has more Arctic territory than any other country. Uh, it has also the record for the coldest. Uh, Saka, minus 72.11 Celsius, that's minus 97 uh, Fahrenheit. And when you're in that sort of environment, you realise that everything's involved in response to cold. 
And when I was there, I sort of felt the cold was a natural state and the heat was a luxury. But the coldest I've ever had myself with wind chill, as you know, it's the wind chill that's the killer thing, was minus 115 in the Antarctic. And when you, I threw a mug of uh, boiling tea in the air and it froze before it uh, hit the ground, hit the ice. So, um, okay, that is obviously a supermarket. Now, do you remember um, when Sarah Palin um, was at it? She said that she could see Russia from her window. Remember that? Okay, so that's the Russian Far East. It's Siberia. It's, you go through Siberia. It's not Siberia. It's nine time zones from Moscow. Um, and uh, it takes eight hours to get there from Moscow. It's close to foreigners, like a lot of um, uh, nasty places in Russia, because they don't want you to see how ghastly it is. Um, and uh, so this is the only supermarket in an area. There's no roads except in the capital. And this is the only supermarket in an area the size of France. Ducocca, which is the Far East, is the size of France. This is the only supermarket. Of course, nothing grows. So all this stuff has flown in um, from usually the factory south of Petersburg. So that's all come through eight time zones as well. I actually saw an Arctic roll in the freezer, which had been made uh, <laughs> just, just too horrible to contemplate. And they hadn't got the hang of it yet, so they would go in three times a day to buy one item each time. Anyway, the point is, there is a reason for this. Um, okay, oops, sorry. Uh, okay, so that is probably one generation of the same area. Now, that's a really short space of time to go from that to that. See, he's bringing his tea home, it's a walrus head. There's a really short space of time, and when that amount of social change happens that quickly, then bad things are, about, uh, are bound to... Um, result, in the case they did. And these people, the Chukchi people, of course, they were there long before the Cossacks rode east and the Mongols rode north. Um, and they'd just been disenfranchised, and there's a mass uh, exodus. Oh, that was ha uh, haircut of the year. Hairstyle of the year. Okay, so this is just a tiny point. This is Anadir, which is the capital of that Chukotkin. Anyway, this is really unlike a Russian city, because it looks quite nice, doesn't it? These lovely... Uh, murals and, you know, because most Russian cities are real, you know, shitholes of the first water. Um, and uh, so I thought, this is extremely peculiar, this kind of mild, I mean, that's not quite Sarah Palin's house over there, but it's just over the Bering Strait. <laughs> and I didn't, couldn't make any sense of it when I, when I was there. And um, the other thing I couldn't make any sense of was there's lots of little boys running around with Chelsea caps on. I thought, God, we're a long way from Stamford Bridge here. And then it, I, it sort of, I found out that um, Roman Abramovich had, had, had moved all his companies to be headquartered here because the tax base is, you know, nil almost. So he headquartered his companies here and he decided while he was about it, he might as well become governor just to um, make sure that he could keep everything under control. And he put a lot of money in and he'd really Im improved the infrastructure in terms of schools and hospitals and uh, housing stock. You see, it's, it's really quite nice. Um, sorry, I've got the hang of this. Um, so that was that sort of odd thing. Yeah, that was in the Barrens in um, Canada. Um, as I say, everybody, every nation has its own way, has had its own way of trying to, of dealing with the indigenous peoples in the Arctic. And I should say about the indigenous peoples, of course, they've got their, their maps are all in their head. And they've got an sort of incredible knowledge. They're, they're hunters, you know, the incredible knowledge of where things are without ever having had a, a recourse um, to making a map. And of course, when the, when the first contact occurred, they were pre-literate anyway. 
Um, so the Russians sort of did it with bureaucracy. Um, uh, the Americans did it with money, as I've said, shown you with the pipeline, and they give out um, dividends and so on. The Can Canadians did it with kindness. Um, the Danes did it with prefabricated housing that they took to um, Greenland. Uh, the Swedes did it with chainsaws chopping down the forest. And everybody did it with booze and syphilis, and the result's the same. It's a rather grim story. The whole grim process, of course, of bringing indigenous peoples into the fold has to start with language. And um, there's some stuff written by people from the Institute of uh, Linguistics in Petersburg who were first went up, when they first went up, you have to sort of sit down with people in the main tent and sort of say, OK, let's start trying to codify. One, what's one? Write it down. What's two? Two, three. What's four? What do you mean four? It goes one, two, three, many. That was, that was, so you see, the, I said, tell that story because of the sort of the concept, how concepts, you have to start with so, with such basic concepts of things being different. Um, uh, and incidentally, uh, the, the, Dan the, the Danes sent uh, missionaries, of course, to uh, minister to the Inuktitut in Greenland. And uh, one minister who wrote a book subsequently, it's rather good about it, he had to start translating things and he did the Lord's Prayer. It says, give us this day our daily seal. <laughs> Anyone know who that is? Anyone know who that is? Nansen. Somebody does know. This is the greatest polar explorer who's ever lived. And don't let anybody tell you otherwise. And he was a neuroscientist. And you know, do you still use the phrase Nansen fibers for the, something that, and then the back of the neck? Anyway. He was an extremely distinguished doctor. And uh, uh, I said something that was, might have been interpreted as disparaging about explorers, but of course, in the old days, they really were mapping the world and discovering things. And this was, um, that's uh, Nansen again. Um, uh, he got nearer to the North Pole than anybody had um, before him, um, uh, it, which was two, let me, 86 degrees, just 230 miles short. Um, that was in 1895. He won the Nobel Prize, by the way, the Peace Prize as well. He's just a Renaissance man. Anyway, um, on this trip here, um, when he got close to the North Pole, the ship got frozen in, as they always did. And he and one of the stokers had to set out with collapsible kayaks and a sledge to find out where they were and to try and find rescue, which is chances of them finding rescue were sort of almost nil. And they um, eventually did did find land, Franz Josef land, which is an unoccupied island in the Arctic Ocean, um, where I also went. Um, uh, and they had to, then, then the winter came, but of course dark all the time, so they shared a sleeping bag with two of them, which is a sensible thing to do, you know, for the whole winter. And when the sun rose, um, which is obviously a marvelous day, uh, one of them said to the other, they shook hands and said, I think we should start calling one another by our first names now. <laughs> Okay, 146 days without changing your underwear. I don't think even my teenagers could manage that. Um, okay, yeah, I like to tell this story, this, show this picture about the indigenous peoples because some of those exploration stories, you know, are absolutely wonderful. I mean, you know, the ones from the south of Scott and Shackleton and all the rest of it, but here you've got people as well. And um, this photograph was taken by an American guy, Peary, who in 1909 claimed to be the first person to uh, get to the North Pole. He's one of the first celebrities, really. Um, and we now know that he, nobody except the members of the Peary Society now believes that he did get there. But here's the point. They all had girlfriends then. 
And the girlfriend, this is Pira's girlfriend, she had two children. And so all these children were left behind. The explorers never saw them again. It's just an aspect of the great heroism of white men <laughs> in indigenous places that is never spoken about. This is an extremely distinguished uh, black guy there, a British, uh, anyone know who that is? Do you know Watkins? Anyway, they were mapping it away because they were a whole load of brilliant guys from Cambridge University who the oil companies, the uh, aerospace companies, uh, paid them to go up to Greenland because, of course, you couldn't fly. The quickest way is to go like that, not like that. But you had, you had to find places to bury fuel. So they went to sort of map it and find fuel dumps. And they had a very successful uh, season. And the indigenous peoples, <laughs> I mean, you know, this is all their girlfriends. So look at her. And, uh, and, you know, she looks very pleased with herself. But uh, my point, you know, there was enormous, there's enormous, uh, when they got back, you know, if they, if they did get back, in fact, he, he, the glacier came on his head when he was kayaking, he didn't come back the second time. There was all sort of massive services in Westminster Abbey and this and that, and they were great heroes and met the king and uh, front pages and left, right and centre. But none of this, none of this, these stories were ever told. It was all kept quiet. Okay, so, um, and does anybody know when the, f the North Pole was eventually reached for the first time? I mean, standing on the ice there, rather than going over it. It's funny, isn't it? Nobody, ever, nobody knows that. 1948, it's 24 Soviets. Um, uh, yeah, now this, um, actually, I will show you this first. Okay, so maps, seabed, underneath the ice. But this is probably the greatest uh, unmapped uh, area of all, which is the sea ice, Arctic sea ice, because it melts and refreezes every season. So it's a different map. I mean, I was uh, traveling on this um, ice Russian icebreaker, and I sat with the captain, and he had last year's map, and he was literally re redrawing it, because the sea, the ice is in a different place each time. So that's a map that's never going to be finalized. It remakes itself every year. I took my, my, uh, one of my kids on this Russian icebreaker, and uh, of course the Russian crew adopted him. And when it came to choosing languages at school, I said, you can't do Russian, because I know the words you know. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, there's, no, there's no nomadic reindeer herders in Lapland anymore. This is Sami land, which is the Sami of the Laps. Um, but they do keep reindeer, and what they do is they keep them on the top and the bottom, and then, then two days a year, they um, uh, get them down and take them up, you know, according to the summer and the winter. So I went to participate in that business. We'll see a bit more, and that's one of my other kids, there you see him. Um, and uh, they tried to make me wean him with uh, cubes of yellow reindeer fat, and I thought that's a bit of a step too far. Um, I'd already got the hang of putting foil down my bra, which is what you have to do to reflect the heat. Oh, God. <laughs> I'm not doing that again. Yeah, so this is what I'm talking about. It's all the um, reindeers. You know, they herd them, you know, just like they have done. For, it's a, quite a, that's a, um, a little lap, lap herder there, and they own them cooperatively. Okay, yeah, art. Um, I'm very interested, as you might expect, um, as a writer, because um, that's all I am, I'm a non-fiction writer. 
in what art has been inspired by the polar regions, which you might think is sort of bleached and just in the same way that the Antarctic is like biological haiku, nothing, nothing lives in the, in the middle. And remember, it's one and a half times the size of the United States. Um, and it's, that could be very, very fertile. And this is one of my favorite, favorite, favorites. This is an artist um, who's very distinguished, uh, American artist, and he went in the 30s to North Greenland, the 30s, in flight, he said, from 1930s America. Well, you might well want to uh, flee from that. And the polar regions, the blank sheets, the terra incognita, they are have often functioned as uh, places where uh, artists of all hues can impose their visions like on a blank sheet. Um, that was a woodcut of his housekeeper, Salamina. Um, he, he designed these special gloves with a hole in the thumb, you know, um, with a hole for the thumb to come out so he could uh, hold his paintbrushes. And he wrote about what he found in Greenland as the contentment of merely being. And surely that's the aim of all civilized peoples, don't you think? Um, and he wrote, in Greenland one discovers, as if for the first time, what beauty is. God must forgive me that I tried to paint it. And similarly, you see, this is an old woodcut, 17th century, and this is a lap, a lap of praying to his gods. You see his antlers, reindeer antlers, made his shrine. Yeah, I couldn't bear to leave that one out. Okay, so we're going to go back to the telegraph pole. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about that. Um, I went with a very open mind. I'm not a scientist. I was a very open mind about climate change. But you can't spend a lot of time with the scientists who really are at the cutting edge of it and the sort of top scientists in the world without being completely convinced that, you know, we've got a catastrophe on our hands and climate change deniers are just idiots. Um, and I don't know what their agenda is, really, except obviously in, in America, I think it's the uh, hydrocarbon lobby. Um, so, as I say, this was on two miles of ice. I felt as if I should make a, make a sacrifice, really, when I got those. This is referred to all the time by glaciologists and people taking ice cores. They're still taking ice cores from elsewhere. It's off the Greenland ice cap and everywhere else, really. They take these sort of huge tubes back to, you know, imagine the logistics of taking something frozen back to the Midwest or whatever, but they do it. Um, and it's really, it's really difficult, as I mentioned earlier. So we were staying, I camped on the ice sheet uh, here, off the Greenland ice cap, uh, at 10,500 feet. Um, and the, 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 well, all the gear has to be specially manufactured, you know, to withstand the temperatures and so on. And um, they had Arc a tent called Arctic Ovens, which I discovered was a very misleading <laughs> name. They're basically standard double-war double pyramids adapted for the polar regions. Um, with a dark lining, which is designed to absorb solar radiation and therefore heat the interior, but that didn't work at all. And of course, when you're camping in very cold environments, you have to keep anything you don't want to freeze in your sleeping bag with you. So any batteries, or you want to try and avoid using batteries really, because they just, you know, they die, the cold sucks out of them. Um, you know, uh, clean pa uh, pair of socks if you don't want, I was going to say clean, but they're never clean. But a pair of socks if you don't want them to be frozen in the morning. Um, your water bottle is terribly dry, so you've got to drink. You've got to have all that with you, spare bits of um, scientific paraphernalia. You've got to have all that in the bag with you. So it's like sleeping in a cutlery drawer in a freezer. <laughs> and <laughs> I would crawl out each morning looking like a sort of creature from some key stage of evolution. Um, but this is mapping climate history, these cores. Climate history has maps of its own. But what they do, obviously, is they analyze the air bubbles in the bottom, and they can find out all kinds of things. And uh, 
you know, you're in a store cupboard, not a store cupboard, it's obviously under the ice, with all these sort of white logs, and uh, the glaciologists will say, Sarah asked about the Battle of Hastings, you know, and it's just incredibly interesting, and they are mapping um, climate history. Um, how am I doing for time, Sam? Mm? Five minutes, and then questions. Five minutes, then questions? Yeah. Okay. Um, okay. So there's still, a, but I said about the, the, the melting, the, the, the climate change melting, but there's still an awful lot of ice. Now, that's my icebreaker going through there. Um, and you can see that there is still a, a hell of a lot of ice in the Arctic Ocean. It's just that there's a lot less than there used to be. Um, maps uh, control the uncontrollable, don't they? And they tame the untamable. And it's very difficult to do that in the Arctic Ocean. Now, as I haven't got very long left before I finish, I'm going to deliver a quick uh, party political broadcast um, uh, regarding David Mitchell's fantastic talk um, last night. Um, and I just go, I, know I have to say this, because I know there's a lot of GPs here. Um, I'm a trustee of a charity called SIBS, which supports children and adults who are siblings of disabled people. As you know, the third sector defines disabled now as intellectual, um, mental, as well as physical, and it's also life-limiting conditions and life-threatening conditions. And I'm a sibling myself, and I very much believe passionately in this charity because it supports people, especially kids, who you may... You, I was always alone, and this provides sort of, uh, support networks, chat rooms, obviously, mo you know, moderated out of existence, days and so on and so on. So I just want to pass that on. You can, if you Google SIBS, it's the first thing that comes up. It's a really good charity. I really believe in it. And it supports siblings. It's not for parents. It's for siblings. But I guess GPs see a lot of parents with their disabled child and knowing that they've got other children, pass it on. And um, while I'm on my soapbox, uh, I was extremely moved by Kate Clunch's talk yesterday about the incredible work she does helping... Um, child refugees through poetry and um, very few of us have got the skills or the grace or the commitment of David Knott to do what he does but you can do something it's wonderful what Kate does so this is my message I've just had a refugee living with me for six months and it was a fantastic experience children loved it um, and uh, I got him through a charity called Rooms for Refugees so you can do something if you've got a spare room pass it on um, yeah, I don't know if I've really got time to say this. I've talked about the, thi the thickness of the ice and where it melts. That's not the only issue regarding climate change. The other thing is oceanic circulation. You know that the water, uh, the cold water comes down off the glaciers and warm water comes up from the tropics and there's these various pumps, uh, various points across the Arctic where it, where it um, gets, uh, well, does what a pump does, like a washing machine, you know. Sends it in the right. And there's a lot of evidence that some of those pumps are switching off. That's going to have massive implications. Um, probably for Britain, almost because of our position regarding the Gulf Stream and everything, more than uh, many other countries. Um, so uh, my, my, the captain of this icebreak was a Vladivostok man, very saturnine figure. Um, and he pointed out various pump sites in the Greenland Sea that shifted, like a conveyor belt is probably a better image than a pump. Um, so, you know, there's just so many different aspects of climate change. Uh, we've heard about these tides of carbon monoxide and methane coming out of the permafrost. 
And I mean, you have to travel by train throughout Siberia, as I've done, to realize just how much permafrost there is. You know, you go for a whole day on a train on Trans-Siberian and see nothing, you know, there's nothing there. Um, then you'll come up to some massive neoclassical station. There's a lot of it, so there's all of that. Anyway, we're all carrying on regardless, but here's my, what I'm saying at the, about, about that. Whichever way you look at it, an awful lot depends on what happens in the Arctic in terms of all these different things that contribute to climate change. So we'd be well to think about our stewardship. Yeah, that's uh, east coast of Greenland, which is um, the most remote coast. Poster boys of climate change. They were the first polar bears I ever saw. Okay, so, so one more thing really quickly. Um, uh, there's terrible, but the Arctic is a lot about paradox and unintended consequences. And one of the paradoxes is that the people who live furthest away from the terrible pollutants, the indigenous peoples, they often are the ones that are most poisoned. And the, the reason is, is that the marine food chain is among many factors. And do you remember all those ghastly chemicals that are called PCBs? and flame retardants and that kind of thing. And they've been banned everywhere in the universe since the 70s, but they enter the, the water, the marine food chain, and they never come out. And because of bioaccumulation and biomagnification, as they go up the food chain, because they, they, they like polar, polar mammals and pet fish and so on, because of course they've got a lot of fat, they, you have to. So uh, the, the people at the top of the food chain are the indigenous peoples who still eat polar bear and so on. They're allowed to, they have their quotas. Because those toxins, they're not water-soluble, um, but they're fat-soluble. Um, and uh, the results, I'm telling you, your doctors, uh, endocrine-disrupting chemicals handed up the food chain, uh, affecting, for example, changes in the sex of unborn children by a factor of double. Um, so we have caused an awful lot of damage in the past, which we now don't suffer from at all because it's all gone away, and that's where it's gone, that particular thing, people being poisoned by our rubbish. And the whole business, I could go on about the diets of the indigenous peoples. At first of all, they were told not to eat this, then they were told they had to eat it, oh, just terrible. And of course, it's like in the old days, you know, once they started having pizza flown up there, that's what they want, just like we do. Okay, so, um, yeah. Uh, I think probably I'll end on this. From scientists, I learned, in the Arctic that actually whatever we do to the planet, all these bad things we're doing, the planet will regulate itself. It'll be all right. It always is. It's us who are going to suffer. Um, there's nowhere I've seen the frailty or understood the frailty of humanity and aspects of what it is to be human because that's what I write about. I mean, what else is there to write about? Um, but in, than in the Arctic, for those kind of reasons. And I'm ending on this one, which is, um, it's an extremely sacred um, uh, site to uh, Russian Orthodox people, and it's in the White Sea. It's called Solovki. Um, it's the first this, the first that, and it's an extremely devout um, place. But also, it was the site of the first labor camp, the first gulag. Solzhenitsyn writes about it. Um, really a terrible, terrible, you know, you, when you're, they killed all the monks and um, uh, shipped people in there. And it was after that, that the gulag system spread out all over um, Russia, of course. And um, 
Uh, so you've got this holiest place, and yet when you walk around in the beautiful birch woods around there, you know you're walking on bones. And um, it seemed to me that that sort of typified um, something about the Arctic. I don't know what, uh, except, yeah, the frailty and the fragility of um, what it is to be human. And I think you find that in the polar regions, as I've said, even in the Antarctic, which doesn't support life. Um, I've sort of run out of steam now. Um. <laughs> <laughs>